You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. Matthew chapter 25, and tonight we read beginning at verse 31, down to verse 46. Matthew 25, beginning with verse 31. Our Lord said this, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, You did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this good day that you've given to us to worship you and to spend time with each other, encouraging each other, and to be able to give you our praises and to sit under the ministry of your word. These are valuable times, precious times. These are sweet times to our hearts, and we thank you for them. Tonight, Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, we ask for your help, that your spirit would take his sword in hand and deal with our hearts and minds, that you, Lord, would give your gracious assistance in my mind, in my mouth as I preach, and that, Lord, you'd be at work in our hearts as we listen. 
Father in heaven, would you work in this place in this next hour in a way that directs our attention to you and glorifies your great name in our midst. And for anyone who doesn't know you, we ask that you would save. Lord, you would do for them what they cannot do for themselves. That you would grant them repentance and faith in your Son. And transfer them from the domain of darkness into his kingdom of light and life. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Not every warning is an act of love. People have declared warnings with hatred in their hearts. One man says to another, take one more step and I'm going to punch you in the face. Well, there's no love in that warning. But when God warns sinners, God warns mankind of the judgment that is coming when He describes it. And when He joins those warnings to His gospel of grace, there's nothing that can explain those warnings except the love of God. Someone might say, well, don't the warnings make men more responsible? In that sense, isn't judgment being gathered and heaped up and one day vented upon them? Well, that's true. But they were already responsible. Without the warnings, they were responsible. What God's warnings represent is an opportunity. An opportunity for repentance, an opportunity for deliverance an opportunity to be delivered from the precipice of the greatest disaster any human soul could ever know into the joy, the greatest joy any human life could ever know. This is why, as we talked about this morning, this is why we must be faithful to declare all of God's words, including His warnings. When we refuse to declare God's warnings to the world, we mute the love of God. And we have no right to mute the love of God by muting the warnings of God. These last words that Jesus spoke in the Olivet Discourse are some of those sobering words in all the Bible. He talks about a great day of separation, a great day of the settling of eternal destinies, a great day of the declaration of eternal sentences. This is the great judge. This is the great shepherd. This is the great king. This is the son of man. This is the son of God. This is the Lord Jesus Christ separating humanity into two groups, the righteous and the accursed, those who enter into everlasting life and those who enter into everlasting damnation. What is amazing is it is the judge speaking these words. He is telling us what he will do when he returns from heaven to judge the earth and to usher in his kingdom. What we have here is very straightforward. It is not hard to understand. But it is vital that we pay attention, that we take these things into our hearts, and that we then respond in a way that God would have us to, that would glorify him. Tonight we're going to look at these verses under two main headings. Very simple outline. First of all, the details of the judgment. Let's just pay attention to the details. Let's just take note of the facts. And then we're going to talk about seven lessons 
for us in this present age, seven lessons for us that emerge out of the details of this judgment. The first thing I want you to notice in terms of the details is Christ's description of Himself, Christ's description of the judge. It's interesting to me that Jesus speaks of Himself, but He speaks of Himself in objective terms. The disciples have asked, when are you going to return? When are you going to do these things? And yet when He talks about Himself in these verses, He's referring to Himself in the third person in many cases. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, He will sit on His glorious throne. And on He goes. Why are you talking about yourself this way, Jesus? Why don't you say you will sit on your glorious throne? I will sit on my glorious throne. Why do you say the Son of Man will, He will, etc.? Why? I think one reason is He is driving home the point that He is Him. That is, He is the one who has been described and promised throughout the Scriptures. In fact, the ways that He describes Himself in these verses describe the fulfillment of biblical promise. The first way that He describes Himself, a very common way for Jesus, the most common way, He says, but when the Son of Man comes in His glory. The Son of Man. Who is Jesus? He is the Son of Man. And while that underscores the reality of His humanity, it also has messianic significance and specifically has to do with the kingdom of God. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him, as to the one who was like a son of man, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is telling us He is the Son of Man. He is that Son of Man. Describes Himself as the King, right? The details about the judge on display in our verses. The judge is the Son of Man. The judge is the King. Verse 31, He will sit on His glorious throne. Verse 34, Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed to My Father, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The one who's going to judge the earth is the Son of Man. The one who's going to judge the earth is the great King who was promised in the Old Testament Scriptures. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. It is not at all accidental or incidental that he describes this judgment in terms like a shepherd separating out his sheep from goats. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The Son of Man, the King, the great shepherd of the sheep, He is the Son of God. In verse 34, Come, you who are blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom. Who is His Father but the one who has blessed these people? His Father is God. This is the Son of God. And He is a sovereign Savior. Inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He, he is accepting those who are destined for the very kingdom they enter. He is 
in this depiction, the Lord. Verse 37, Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? He is the Lord. And that's not just acknowledged by those on his right. It's also acknowledged by those on his left. Verse 44, Then they themselves also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? The one who is going to be acknowledged as Lord by all humanity. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the divine Savior brother. When he talks about what has been done on behalf of his people in verse 40, he describes those people as his brothers. The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. This is one of the amazing truths revealed in the Word of God that our Savior, His life and death and resurrection, His finished work on our behalf has made us the children of God by adoption. We are also those who have been granted a new nature, one that has made us children of God by nature as well as by adoption. And He is in that relationship not ashamed to relate Himself to us as brother. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, But we see Him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The eternal Son of God, taking to himself a nature like ours without sin, to bring many sons to glory, and he's not ashamed to be identified with those sons as brethren. Who is the judge? He is the Son of Man. He is the great King. He is the great Shepherd of the sheep. He is the Son of God. He is a sovereign Savior. He is the Lord. He is the divine Savior, brother. And when you take all of this into account, you can say He is the heir of all things. At the end of the age, He has come in glory. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 says, But in these last days He has spoken to us, by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Jesus came the first time in a humble state, laid aside the visible expression of His glory to save us and all of that. Now restored to Him as the victor, as the victorious Savior by His Father, as he prayed in John chapter 17, so that when he comes the second time, he's coming in glory to inherit all things. He'll be seen as glorious. 
He'll be accompanied by glorious angels. He will sit on a glorious throne, as it's described, and he will exercise glorious authority. So the first detail we see in these verses has to do with the judge himself. Who is he? This is who he is. The second thing we see is the time for the judgment. When will this judgment take place? Verse 31, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Jesus is describing a time when he comes with unmistakable glory. This is not a reference to some spiritual coming. This is not a reference to some invisible coming. This is not a reference to something where men would have to say, well, is this the second coming? Is this what he meant by, by his coming? No, when he comes, it will be unmistakable and marked by glory. And he's talked about this multiple times. Matthew 16, verse 27, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. Matthew 19, 28, And Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. When is this judgment? It is when he comes back to the earth and his glory is revealed. This time of judgment is both a time of relief and a time of wrath. We talked about that this morning. It is both a time of salvation and a time of judgment. This separation is occurring, and those who belong to Him enter into blessing, and those who do not enter into punishment. 2 Thessalonians 1.6 says, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Paul there says there's a day of relief coming, and it's going to be when Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. No more persecution, no more mistreatment of the people of God. A time of relief for us, but at the same time, He inflicts vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. The gospel comes with a command, repent and believe. Those who did not obey the gospel will meet with vengeance. This time of judgment is a time then of accountability. Accountability. Jude, the 12th verse says this, these are hidden reefs, speaking of false teachers, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones. There again, the Lord Jesus coming with angels to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they've committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh 
things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. One day, sinful men held accountable for the ungodly way that they've lived and the ungodly things that they have said. When is this judgment coming? When He returns from heaven to earth with His angels. What does this time of judgment represent? A time of relief and wrath? A time of accountability? A time of global, visible revelation, as I've already mentioned. Not some secret coming, not some spiritual coming, not some invisible coming. No, He's going to return to the earth just like He left the earth. Revelation 1 verse 7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. Even so, amen. This is what the disciples heard from the angel as Jesus ascended into heaven. Acts chapter 1 verse 6, And when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I mean, what is the context of their discussion? It's the kingdom of God on earth involving the nation Israel. Is this the time? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by His own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when He had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That is the time of judgment that Jesus is talking about. The time when he returns from heaven to earth and every eye sees him coming with the clouds, just as He left, so He will return. To be clear, I'm sure you know this, but just to be clear, what's being described here is not the final judgment. This is not the great white throne judgment. No, this is a judgment that precedes entrance into the thousand-year millennial earthly kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ that He Himself will usher in. He judges the earth, separates the sheep from the goats, and the righteous enter into the kingdom, and the wicked are banished everlasting darkness. Who will be judged? This is the third detail. The judge, the time of the judgment. Third, the people to be judged. Verse 32 makes clear it's going to be the whole earth. And all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. What that will be is a manifestation, just a manifestation, a demonstration of a spiritual reality that already exists. The whole earth can be divided into two families, those who belong to Satan and those who belong to God. Those who are the accursed, as he describes them here, and those who were predestined for salvation, given to Christ to be saved. And what will be demonstrated at that time is that Jesus has been given authority over all humanity, over all flesh, to save and to judge. Those who will enter into that kingdom will be those given to Christ for salvation before the world was ever made. John chapter 17 verse 1 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life 
to all whom you've given him. To whom does Jesus give eternal life? Those given to him by his Father. When were they given by his Father? Before the world was formed. So that Jesus came into the earth, stepped out of heaven, born of a virgin, entered into this life a representative. He came to save a people for God. He came to save His sheep. And in like manner, those who will be judged one day will be judged because all judgment has been handed over to the Son by the Father. So He will judge those given to Him for judgment just as He will pronounce salvation over those who were given to Him for salvation. John chapter 5, verse 19, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing, and greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Notice the sovereignty of Jesus in salvation. God is sovereign. Jesus is God. These people have been given to Jesus for salvation, and in the same breath He can say, I save those whom I will. The Son gives life to whom He will. Verse 22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The Judge, the Son of Man, the King, the Great Shepherd of the Sheep, the Son of God, the Sovereign Savior, the Lord, the Divine Savior Brother, the Heir of all things. The time for judgment, when He comes in His glory, a time of relief and wrath, a time of accountability, a time of global, visible revelation. And the people to be judged, the whole earth, the sheep and the goats, the two families of humanity existing right this moment on the planet. These are the people to be judged. Fourth detail we see in the last one, then we'll move on to some lessons. The fourth detail we see, the evidence for the judgment, the evidence for the judgment. What does Jesus mention as evidence as He accepts some and rejects others? The evidence for the judgment is the deeds of these people. Now, this is not meant to tell us everything Jesus will say when this judgment occurs. Rather, it is meant to emphasize something in this depiction of the judgment, and that makes this depiction is so important because there's something being stressed to us. And what is being stressed to us is that people's spiritual conditions can be known by their deeds. 
by what they do, by how they live. And the people he's talking about specifically in this context are the people alive at the time of his second coming, which means they have been living in the midst of the tribulation period. But what distinguishes the righteous from the accursed is what they've done. Not at all, and I'll talk about this in a moment, not at all indicating that salvation is by works, but rather that where you have salvation, there will be the fruit of that salvation, and that is demonstrated by one's works. People who have genuine faith live differently, behave differently, think differently, love differently, choose differently. So that when this great dividing day comes, Jesus can identify the two groups by how they have responded in the midst of this tribulation. So these are the details that we see in the text. Now let's move second to the lessons displayed in the judgment. There are seven I want to mention. Lessons displayed in this judgment. Lessons for us sitting here tonight. And I'll begin where I just left off. That is genuine faith. Lesson number one, genuine faith is demonstrated by works. Genuine faith is demonstrated by works. In this judgment, he doesn't mention the gospel. In this judgment, he doesn't mention their beliefs. In this judgment, he mentions what they've done. As I said, not because sinners are saved by their works. The Bible's clear about that from beginning to end. God saves sinners by grace. God saves sinners by faith alone. But what he is demonstrating in these verses is that genuine faith is not fruitless. And the fruit is not just words. Both groups call him Lord. The fruit is not just words. And the Bible joins these two things together. Perhaps one of the most dangerous things that we've witnessed in our lifetime is in the mouths of evangelical preachers, there seems to be this divide. It's believed it can somehow exist between what one believes and says and what one does. Like there's no connection, no necessary product of a genuine faith. Did you pray the prayer? Did you ask Jesus in your heart? Did you say the right words? Well, then never have a doubt because you're going to be in heaven. Regardless of what the story of your life says, and the Bible says something very different than that. Rather, the Bible calls us to examine our lives and ask, is my faith genuine? As the book of James puts it, do you believe like demons who believe that God is one? You believe that God is one, you do well. The devils believe and tremble. Is that the kind of faith you have, a demonic kind of faith? Or do you have the faith that is the product of regeneration, God-granted faith, produced by the Spirit of God Himself in a human heart? Listen to Ephesians 2. You know this very well. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not, I mean, how clear can you be? Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But what is the very next verse? For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You were as predestined for good works following your salvation as you were predestined to be saved. And I want you to notice that the works on display in our verses are not things considered to be great in the eyes of the world. 
Nothing spectacular mentioned here. We could describe them as quiet works. Quiet works. Giving food. I was hungry and you fed me. Welcoming strangers. Clothing people who need clothing. Visiting the sick. Visiting people in prison. These are the deeds that he mentions as he talks about the works of those who are his sheep, who are his people. So lesson number one, genuine faith is demonstrated by works. I would ask you tonight, you, you're here on a Sunday evening. I know you profess faith in Jesus unless someone brought you. Do your works accord with your profession. In your life, do you see the fruit of faith works, genuine faith? Second lesson, genuine faith is demonstrated by our relationship to God's people, by our relationship to God's people. And that really is what Jesus is talking about in these verses, isn't it? He's not talking about feeding just anybody, clothing just anyone, visiting just anyone, receiving just anyone. No, he's talking about a time period where there's going to be great tribulation and great persecution of the people of God. And these who are his people during that time have had compassion for their brothers who are his brothers. They have loved the people of God. How often have you heard these verses taught in a way that's just some sort of general compassion? And I'm not denying that there is a compassion known in the hearts of God's people that is absent the hearts of lost people. That is true. We are a people who know the compassion that God teaches. But what is being stressed in these verses is if you know the shepherd, you love his sheep. You care about your brothers. The question of who these brothers are that Jesus talks about has been debated. I agree with D.A. Carson's explanation, so let me just give it to you. He says the best interpretation is that Jesus' brothers are His disciples. The fate of the nations will be determined by how they respond to Jesus' followers who, missionaries or not, are charged with spreading the gospel and do so in the face of hunger, thirst, illness, and imprisonment. Good deeds done to Jesus' followers, even the least of them, are not only works of compassion and morality, but reflect where people stand in relation to the kingdom and to Jesus Himself. What do you stand in relation to Jesus? What do you stand in relation to His work? Well, then, how do you treat people engaged in His work who are suffering? That's the point. Carson goes on to say, Jesus identifies Himself with the fate of His followers and makes compassion for them equivalent to compassion for Himself. Now, this truth that saved people love God's people, that saved people love the church, is something the New Testament stresses when we come to the examination of salvation in the book of 1 John. This is one of the great tests of whether someone is saved or not. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. These two great families on the earth, God's people and the devil's people. Well, who are God's people? 
By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. What marks the children of God is righteous works, and one aspect of those righteous works is a love for the people of God. 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You claim to have the kind of faith that can see him who is invisible? Well, if you really have that faith and you also have his love, and if you have his love, you'll be able to love people who are right there in front of you. If your faith can't love what is visible, taught by God, the people who have been taught by God to love each other in our hearts and by His Word, if you can't practice faith with what is visible, how do I believe you when you say you're practicing that faith with Him who is invisible? James chapter 1, verse 27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Holy living matched with hearts of compassion. So that even the least of these, orphans and widows, we care about. So lesson one, genuine faith is followed by faith works. Lesson two, those faith works include a love for God's people. Genuine faith is demonstrated by our relationship to God's people. Third lesson, genuine faith is demonstrated by works that are not contrived. One interesting feature of this account is that these people are not aware of what Jesus is talking about. When, Lord? When did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty? and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? When, when did we do these things? Now, obviously, you and I have been taught that what we do, we do on behalf of the Lord. This is Christian teaching throughout the ages. These people will know that. What's being emphasized in the story is that what they have done wasn't something designed to win merit in the sight of God. It was supernaturally natural. It was just the byproduct of their renewed nature. If you and I have the Spirit of God, if the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Spirit of God, then whenever there's a need among our brethren, it, it brings out of us a desire to meet that need. Say it another way, this would be the fourth lesson. Faith works are God-focused, not self-focused. These people are not very mindful of themselves, are they? They're not really paying attention, you know, making a checklist, keeping a, a tally of the things they've done for others in the name of Jesus. Contrast that with what you see of the Pharisees. Religious hypocrites are very aware of what they do. They keep a list of their merits, their merits in their own mind. They praise themselves for their deeds and for their accomplishments. They would not only be ready to hear Christ's praise, they would probably have additions to His list. 
this is what else we did, Lord. But not these people, not the people who enter into the kingdom. No, these people have done what they've done in a way that was spontaneous. When salvation's love abides in a person, a brother's need calls forth desire. It's not something for show. It's not something artificial. It's from a heart that's been taught by God to love, love his family. Fifth lesson. Genuine faith is demonstrated by works. Genuine faith is demonstrated by our relationship to God's people. Genuine faith is demonstrated by works that are not contrived. Faith works are God-focused, not self-focused. Fifth, the unregenerate don't have any of this. The unregenerate are absent all these things. The works that are the fruit of faith, obviously, they did not perform those deeds. I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You did not invite me in. I was naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Absent love for the people of God. Absent the humility Evidenced in those who took no account of their deeds. Absent the desires granted by salvation that make loving responses natural. One of the reasons why I'm convinced, we've talked about it a lot in our teaching of the Word of God, but I'm convinced that true godliness is not programmed. It's not manufactured. It's not, now let's sit down, let me disciple you and give you a list of 20 things you need to do every day. And if you're doing this list, well, that's advancement in godliness. Because when that's the approach to sanctification, what do you do? You end up taking note of everything on the list. Well, I do this, and I do this, and I do this, and I do this, and I do this. That's not to say there's no such thing as spiritual disciplines. There are. But what are we doing, beloved, after the Lord saves us? As we have His Word, as we have His church, as we have a new nature in the Spirit of God, what do we do? We live that's what we do. We live. And as we live, we love each other. Why? Because we really love each other. We love the church. Why? Because we really love the church. And we study the Word. Why? Because we really love the Word. And we pray. Why? Because we've been now remade to pray. It's not me walking down a checklist of things that I must do to say that I'm advancing in the faith. It is what God has done in our souls that we cannot get away from because it's real. The unregenerate don't have these things. You understand that? Would you say amen? Sixth lesson. Salvation's joy and hell's misery are both eternal. Salvation's joy and hell's misery are both eternal. Verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I'm amazed at how men have twisted and contorted the Word of God to try to somehow believe that the mercy of God will mean that the blessing of salvation will be for forever, but the misery of hell will be for a time. When Jesus uses the exact 
same word in almost the exact same way to describe what believers will receive and what unbelievers will receive. One, eternal punishment. The other, eternal life. This is why I said this is one of the most sobering passages in all the Word of God. The weightiness of what we're being told. Every once in a while in your study you come to the work that a man has done in his commentary that's just so outstanding. You just want to pass it on. Not a quote, but I mean actually a a section of it. He, he just nailed it. And as I read James Montgomery Boyce's commentary this week, when it came to the subject of hell, he was just so on point. I want to share with you four observations that he gave regarding the punishment being described. First, he said, hell is total separation. Hell is total separation. He said this, not just from those who will be with Christ in heaven, it is separation from God. Jesus expressed it when He quoted the king as saying, Depart from me, you who are cursed. Now we've got to be clear. God is omnipresent. His presence will be in hell as much as in heaven. But it won't be His accepting presence. It won't be the presence of fellowship. It won't be the presence of, of common grace in ways that we have known it during this age. It will be a, a form of separation. Depart from me. Cast them out of the outer darkness. Hell is separation. Second, hell is a bad association. A bad association. Verse 41, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Boyce said, we learn something interesting about hell in these verses that is not taught explicitly elsewhere. Hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 41, if hell was prepared for the devil and his angels, the angels that followed him in his rebellion against God and are now known as demons, we can be certain that they will be in hell someday. And if that is the case, it means that those who have refused Christ and have shown it by their neglect of Christ's followers will be sent there to be with those demons. Close quote. Think about that. Have you ever been in the presence of a human being so overtly evil that you wanted to escape that presence? Have you ever been in the presence of someone whose very presence made you uncomfortable, afraid? Understand that hell doesn't just mean separation from God. It means association forever with Satan and the demons. And they will be in hell also. Third, hell is suffering. Hell is suffering. Matthew 25, verse 30, And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
When Jesus told the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man is in hell. And he describes himself as being in agony. Agony. Matthew 25, 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Not fire in all likelihood, not fire as you know it right now on the earth. But there are times that the Word of God gives us descriptions to the best of the level we can fathom. Describing something real, that, but that goes beyond anything we have ever known. So some kind of fire that must include, when you, when you read weeping, weeping must include a burning conscience. What would feel like all-consuming memories of opportunity wasted, grace refused, the foolishness, the stupidity of those who have rejected the gospel. The rich man in hell begs Father Abraham to send the message to his brother so that they won't end up in this place of torment with me. And what is he told? They have Moses and the prophets. What does that mean? They have the Word of God. And if they won't listen to the Word of God, they wouldn't listen if someone returned to them from the dead. Send Lazarus to tell them. No. They have the Bible. Suffering. Fourth, hell is darkness. Outer darkness. Darkness. Must be the deepest darkness anyone could ever imagine. Boyce described it as a kind of darkness where you're conscious of nothing but your own misery and regret and thoughts. This idea you're going to go to hell and shake hands with your buddies and have some sort of party. What, what, what a liar Satan is. Separated from God in the presence of demons and the devil himself suffering in darkness and forever. Eternal punishment. You know, the one thing that is not present in hell is hope. There is no hope. Which leads to the last observation, and that is, or the last lesson, the time of opportunity is while we live before the king arrives. Whether we meet with the king through death or we meet with the king through his second coming, the opportunity, the only opportunity you'll have to be saved is now. This lifetime. Once again, we've seen it throughout the entire Olivet Discourse. We see it yet again that when the king arrives, there is no more opportunity. There's just this separation, this judgment. Now I want to ask you, as we talked about this morning in our Sermon introduction. Can you now see why love declares the judgments of God? Why love declares the warnings of God? Because this isn't pretend. 
This is real. And so I ask myself, and I ask you, what have we done with these warnings? Have we declared them? Have we spoken them? Again, in a way that accords with, fits with the totality of God's revelation, so that with love and humility and gentleness and all the things that should characterize our communication with sinners, have we told them that the wrath of God is on its way and there's only one way for them to be saved? Do we preach the gospel? Do we give the gospel? Have you believed? Do you know Christ? Does your life say so? Do your loves say so? I don't doubt that for probably almost everyone, if not everyone in this room. That's the truth. That's why you're back on a Sunday evening. You could be anywhere else, but you're here. It speaks of your love for the Word, your love for the church, your love for the Lord. But there are also people, as you know, who attend church out of a sense of tradition. It's the routine. It's what we do. And so there may be someone hearing me tonight, sitting in this room, that you have the right words, Lord, Lord. But the supernatural fruit that comes from the new birth, it comes from a new creation. If you are honest with yourself, it is absent. I exhort you, don't lie to yourself. Don't hold on to a lie. Throw away whatever fear you have of the opinions of people and embrace Christ from your heart and be saved. For us, know that the day that's coming will be a day of great salvation. Jesus pronounces praises and blessings But until then, whether through death or through His coming, we've been given these warnings. And may the Lord strengthen us to preach the gospel, the good news. Even as John the Baptist, we saw that this morning. hope that was impressed upon you. There's this long list of judgments and all the ways. And then it says he was preaching with ease and other exhortations. He was preaching the good news. So people are convinced they're sinners. They won't know they need to be saved. So may the Lord help us in a way that Stephen did, filled with the Spirit. May the Lord help us to be faithful with His message. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love You and thank You for this amazing section of Scripture that we have been over these past few weeks, the Olivet Discourse. And thank You especially, Lord, for the way that our Lord brings it to a close as we see that He fulfills the promises of Your Word, and He will judge this world in a way that reflects who He is, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Shepherd of the sheep, the Lord of glory, all the things, the King, all the ways that Scripture describes the Messiah, so Jesus is. Thank You, Lord, that You've told us when this time is coming, when He returns from heaven to earth, what the evidences are that will make clear that these people who were judged as His sheep were really His sheep. Their love for their fellow sheep. Their love for Your people. Hearts of compassion for the needs of brethren. From these things, Lord, would You work in our hearts to convict us, to confirm us, to stir us up to love and good deeds. The very thing we're told is 
Pastor Josh read this morning, the very thing we're told that we're to be doing as we gather together. Exhort each other all the more as we see the day coming. Do this in us, your people, for your glory and for the salvation of sinners, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.